Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 240. We are in the first week of the month of Tevis, Ches Tevis. This week will be Asar B'Tevis on Tuesday. It's also the week of Shabbos Parshas Vayechi, or Parshas Vayechi, which will be read on Shabbos Parshas Vayechi next Shabbos. So as is our custom, which is based on the directives of the Rebbe and the Rabbeim, decide to live with the times. We'll talk about the timely matters. We'll begin with talking about the timely matters, including the Pasha. This uh, episode and program is dedicated in honor of Menachem Mendel Jacobson upon his 35th birthday on Zion Tavis. So, we've spoken, of course, in previous years on both about Asar B'Tavis and Vayechi. I'll try to share another thought. Chassidus has, of course, many different dimensions, many different interpretations on different verses and different themes in each week's Pasha, and as well as something about Asar B'Tavis. But the cross-reference, I did speak about it in episodes 49, 95, 145, and 194. I mention it because this program has been going now for a number of years, and obviously, because of the cycle every year, we go through the same dates. So many topics have been talked about. And like we cross-reference them because they're all available in archives. You go to meaningfullife.com slash mylife, and you can, you can find all the archives, all the 239 previous episodes of every possible topic, easily searchable, and also time-stamped in the YouTube. When you click on the YouTube version on a desktop or a laptop, you can actually have them timestamp and just go straight to the topic that you're interested in. So the themes that jump out, especially that the Rebbe focused on, Asura B'tevis is one of those days that you don't find so much from the other Rabbeim. You find about the Shemus, about the fasting, but the Rebbe instituted or reinstituted, renewed the minig, the custom of divrek fushin, which is words of inspiration and words that were said in the Kehillis, in the Jewish communities in the past, on fast days. The Rebbe instituted this, instituted actually in Tov Shalamet Ches, the equivalent of, well, this time of year would have still been 1977, and it was right after the Rebbe's heart attack. It's one of the things that was, what was demonstrated, that the Rebbe demonstrated his um, using a negative event to turn it into something even more positive by adding more sikhs, more ideas, more concepts. And, and one of the things was that he reinstituted on, on the 10th of Tevis that year, where the Rebbe was still speaking from his room. Um, and the Rebbe spoke both the night of Asar Tevis and also the day of Asar Tevis and Sarah and all that from the room. And later was Magiyat, edited it, began reinstituting Fush. And after that was the same thing, was on the other fast days throughout the year. And that became something accustomed from there on. The Rebbe spoke... I believe on every fast day almost, maybe there's an exception or one or two. So Asar B'Tevis, what would the Rebbe say in Tav Shalom Ches? So it says, printed today, and you can look in the Kutis Sichis, volume 20, in the Esophis, in the editions, there are all the Sichis from that period in time, that year, Tav Shalom Ches, after the heart attack of Shemini Atzeres, the Sichis that were set every Mitzray Shabbos, and also days, like I said, Asar B'Tevis. Um, actually, Asar B'Tevis... I may be wrong, I have to correct myself, because the Rebbe went home, Rishchidosh Kislev, so what may not have been from the room, I think, I'm not positive whether it was from the room or not, I have to look it up. 
So if I, if I made my mistake, I apologize. But it still may have been from the room. I don't recall. I don't, I'm not sure right now. Um, okay. But there was the Sikhs. One of the powerful thoughts that the Rebbe shared there was the fact that Asura B'tevis, it says in Avud Raham, which is a work of Halacha, middle-aged scholar, says that Asura B'tevis never comes out on a Shabbos. And now it's been scheduled. And one of the reasons it was done that way, because if it comes out on a, would come out on a Shabbos, it would be Deicha Shabbos. The only other fast day that pushes off Shabbos is Yom Kippur. Even Tisha B'av doesn't. It would be Deicha Shabbos. And how do we know this? We learn it from the fact that that's about the 10th of Tevis, which is when Nebuchadnezzar built a Mozart, he built a, uh, an encampment surrounding Yerushalayim, the wall. That began on the 10th of Tevis. And in the verse it says, "Be'etzem hayem So we derive from we derive from that. Avud Ram writes, since the other place it says "Be'etzem hayem azeh" on Yom Kippur, the Gzeda Shava, that just like Yom Kippur has more power than Shabbos, so too does Asar B'Tevis have more power than Shabbos. But Peul, in actuality, doesn't happen because the schedule is not that way. But that's the power of tenth of Tevis. The Rebbe, of course, asks the question: Why Asar B'Tevis is only the beginning of a process that would take? A while till it actually led God forbid to the Churm Bismis. This was just the surrounding and the besieging of Jerusalem. Then it would come seventeenth of Tammuz would be the breach of the wall. And then ninth of all, three weeks later, was the actual burning down of the Besamidus. So Sarovatevis is part of the process. And if Eden had done tshuva and the Ebrister had Rahmanis, it may not have ended up happening even negatively. But why would that have more power than the Tishabov itself? Tishabov is a 24-hour fast that begins the night before. And even when Tishabov is on Shabbos, you push it off to Sunday. And the Rebbe's answer was that because you, when you look at an issue or a problem, you don't begin when the problem exists, you begin at the root of the problem. The root of the problem was the besieging and the, and the, of Jerusalem. If that had not happened, the rest wouldn't have happened. So what was the real challenge here? That Vuchanetzer, the king of Babylon, was strong enough to finally isolate the in, in Yerushalayim, circle it, and unless there was a miracle, it was just a matter of time. So it's like looking at when you begin, you don't always wait till the symptoms, you don't always wait, for God, for God forbid, for example, a person that's ill, you don't wait till the infection becomes so strong you can't fight it anymore. You begin as soon as it's there, you nip it in the butt. So Asura B'tavis is the initial, the first step we saw the, that Yerushalayim unfortunately was besieged. What is that Naveda? So the Rebbe explains that surrounding a wall, what is the wall? What is the, the role of a wall, a wall is a protective shield. When cities is surrounded by a wall, it was usually either capitals or very important cities like Jerusalem that was surrounded by a wall. A wall is extra protection from enemies. In Ruchnius, a wall is asusiyog l'teira. Siyogim, when you create a geder, which means, because uh, there's some pirza, for example, if somebody, if you have a field, to use a simple example. And you want to make sure no trespassers come in and damage your crops. You build a wall. You build a gate. When you see that certain things in Yiddishkeit, that the Chazal and our, our, our sages saw, that there were times there was something was threatened, they built a wall. They added a special measure, a special chumrah. You don't have to wait till already it gets bad. 
That's, for example, the most, one of the most basic ones is why we light Shabbos candles 18 minutes before the Shkia. Why wait till the last minute when it's already Shabbos? So this way you always have taste for Shabbos, 18 minutes before. And many other siyogim that we do, not because that itself is not permitted, but because to prevent us falling, God forbid, in a situation where it's already being compromised too late, so you create a, a gate. The gateway is meant to protect. So you could say, so the gateway is not as important as the city itself. Once they breach the wall, that's really where they're attacked, but it's not correct. Because once, they, once you breach the gateway, then you're basically the, the major defense has fallen. What is this in Aveda? In Aveda, we don't wait, God forbid, when, a, when the Yitzhahara comes and says to, to, God forbid, do something which is pro- prohibited or not do a mitzvah. What you do is you make siyogim, and that you stand strong. Because if you stand strong there, you won't have to play defense because you already have that protective element. And anyone who really, in any given situation, whether it's actual battle or psychological battles or anything you have to deal with, whether it's in business or in other things, lahavdil, the same situation. What you do is you create a lot of protective barriers that you don't have to wait till it's too late or till it's already, you're literally protecting your own, uh, your own family and home. You create a wall. And that wall is meant to be the protective element. Once that's breached, or in this case, once that's besieged, that becomes. And the Lashon is Samach Melech Bovo. Samach. Samach means like he leaned on it. But the Rebbe explains Samach also has a positive. Samach means to support. He says, Samach Neflim. Samach is a word of support. So this is because the whole purpose of all these fasts is to be transformed to the positive. So, so the point is that we should transform the Samach of the negative Nebuchadnezzar besieging into a samach of ultimately support. And that's how we transform it. So the lesson here is twofold. Number one, we have to be extremely careful, not just with doing a mitzvah or be protecting or not doing something, God forbid, that's not, not allowed, but we have to create protection. Take our children, for example. You don't wait till they have a negative influence. You put them in an insulated environment that protects them and you make sure that environment is as holy as possible. That automatically avoids that you don't have to deal with something once it's already infiltrated. And the same thing in our personal lives. It's important to have an environment. The walls around our lives should be solid and intact. And when that's besieged, that comes, that's the, the beginning of the whole problem. And that's why it has such a powerful element that type of fast, because that's where it's the beginning of the end, so to speak, or potentially so. The second lesson we learn is the transformation of it. Just like a Soda Batavis has a, such a strong element because it was the beginning and the first crack in the armor, so to speak, God forbid, of the, of, uh, the, the fall of Yerushalayim and Beis Amigdash, same in Gedusha, if it's that powerful to be Deicha Shabbos, in the negative, how much how powerful it is when you transform it to the positive, where you use something that besieged you to build even greater strength. And this you see when people, for example, have fallen in any way or have had some setback. And then you come back stronger than ever, you rebuild. That is an unbelievable strength and power. So the samach, the besieging, becomes actually the source for your inner and outer strength, which is, of course, another powerful lesson applying chassidus to life that even when we that firstly we have to make sure to build as many fences as possible 
to not even have to deal with a challenge because you have all these preemptive and preventive measures. Secondly, that if we do have a setback, God forbid, or something happens, we have ability to transform it into to turn these days from darkness to even a deeper and greater light. Because once you've gone through a challenge, you've gone through a fire, you've learned new things, and you learn a new strength, you have a more passion and a, more, a, a deeper fire and commitment to what is good and what is, what is right and what is bright in this world. Pasha Vayechi. Pasha Vayechi is the last Pasha in this Sefer of Breshis. And it ends the, the Tkufa of the Ovis. This Pasha, Yaakov Avinu passes away. The Shvatim pass away. Yosef passes away. And the next Pasha, the next Sefer Shmeis would begin a new, a new era. The era of Ayokam Elachadosh. A new king would rise, whether it's a new king or one that for, conveniently forgot Yosef and would enslave the Jews. Here in the last 17 years of Yaakov's life, 17, as the Balaturim says, it was the best time of his life, even though it was not in Israel, but the Jews were protected, they were respected, because Yosef was the viceroy of Egypt, and he was Majbir, the whole world he sustained, and he built up that empire of Egypt and the grain industry to, to, uh, to counteract the great famine that they were suffering then in the world. And, uh, but then everything would change. So in a sense, Sefer Breshis ends a era. The Mitla Rebbe has a tremendous um, maimorim on this topic, how the first Sefer is a different Sefer than the other four Svarim and Tehra. Because in a way, it covers 2,000 years. Everything after that would be with the 210 years in Golos Mitzrayim. But after that, it's 40 years till the end of Sefer Dvarim. So he explains that Sefer HaYosher, which is a Sefer HaYosher, meaning those that were Yosherim, Avram, Yitzhak, Yankov, is the story of the Ovis primarily, with a beginning from creation, lays the groundwork, as he puts it, it's like a blueprint, that lays the groundwork of what Tata wants of us. And it gives the kayak and the strength. But when does it really start playing out in real life? In the real, harsh, hostile world is when the Jews end up being enslaved in Mitzrayim, coming out of Egypt. Then Kriyas Yamsuf, Amat and Tata, and the building of the Mishkan, and the journeys through the Midbar. So obviously, Breshis has many, many lessons, and we learn lessons from Avram and Yitzhak and Yankov, and from including Noyach. And before that, uh, Adam and every posik, every verse, every letter has lessons. Teda, Melosh, But Teda, as a Teda, body of Teda that would become the real source of what our Teda's Chaim, living Teda, is when the Jews come through Mitzrayim and they become a nation. And even Rashi hints to it. When he begins the whole Chumash, what does he say? That the Teda should have began, not Bereshit's Baralakim, it should have began with HaChedesh Hazalachem, the first mitzvah, which is when, in Pasha Boy, when the Jews leave Mitzrayim, it's when the Ebeshter tells Meshach Rabbeinu, HaChedesh, this will be the month, and he shows them the new moon, and this will be the month of the Gula. Because the Teda is given to do mitzvahs. Why are we being told, Keich Maisev Higid La'ame? Why do we need to know the creation? It's, it's important, and there are lessons, as I said, but the primary thing of Teda is living it a living Torah to tell us the directives and guidelines of Hayroah B'chaim, a lesson in life, a blueprint for life, applied Torah, applying it to life, begins really in Shemais. And he says, because in order the Goyim will come and say that you stole the Eretz Yisrael, so they say, no, God created the world. Chassidus brings from the Emek HaMelech what that means, in the Ruchni Yonim, that this is the whole point of the Tzimtzum Arishin, 
and the world is created in order for us to transform the world. And all the different explanations in it. But the point I want to make is that we're at the end of this Sefer Breshis, Sefer Yosher, and the next Sefer is called Sefer Geula, actually. The Ramban calls the whole Sefer Geula because Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is also, Golis Mitzrayim is also a step toward Geula. Like Asada Batev is the fast is in order to bring the great ascent and elevation from it. Specifically in Parsha Vayechi, one of the, of the many lessons, one, one lesson by Yechi Tov Shemem Zayin, the Rebbe spoke very powerfully, he spoke about the Friedrich Rebbe, who's like the Yesef of our generation, and asked the question, we know in this Pasha, Yaakov insisted and calls out Yosef and tells him, I want after my passing, I want you to take me back there to Israel and not leave me here in Mitzrayim. Didn't want to become a shrine, all the different reasons for it. And Yaakov, of course, anticipating the question, says to Yosef, I know you, I didn't do that honor to your mother. Rachel was buried on the side of the road. So as Rashi brings, she was not buried in Moras Machpelah where Leah and Yaakov would ultimately be. And before that, Yitzchak and Rivka, and before that, Avram and Sarah, and before that, Adam and Chava. He says, because your mother would have preferred to be there because Rachel mevakal banao. A mother cries for her children. She's the quintessential mother. And being on the road, it was like to cry for her children and show them that she's there with them when they would leave the, after the Churm Beis Amigdash that began in Sarabatevis. That's the connection. So though I didn't bury your mother in Beis I want you to take me back to burial in the place where my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, uh, my parents and grandparents are buried. So the question, of course, is then this. Why, when Yosef was passing away, the end of the Pasha, didn't he tell his brothers or, his, or the people that remained to take him also to Israel? He should be a shrine for the, the Egyptians. And it says, Befeir is the last verse in the, the Pasha, that they buried him in Mitzrayim. Why didn't Yosef learn from his father? So the Rebbe explained in brief, this is a big fundamental principle in the Chassidus, that Avram Yitzhak Yankiv is an Atzilus. Chesed Gvura Teferes of Atzilus, the Elam Agdush Eretz Yisrael. Yesuf Sinyan was not to be a shepherd like the Ovis or the other Shvatimor, which were more or less separate from and insulated from the world, but was to enter into Mitzrayim, into the Erevas Ha'aretz, the depraved world, and there transform it. His, his work was very different. So, in language of Chesidus, he must Mamshech. He's Yesod of Atzilus, that's Mamshech, the, the Chagas, which is Chesed Guru Teferes of Avram Yitzhak Yankov, into Biyah. In simple terms, it means that he brings the Kedusha of Yitzhak should even permeate and affect even Mitzrayim, even a place of Mitzrayim and Vigvulim, of limitations and constraints. That was Yesod's place. That's why he's placed there, and he remains there, knowing and anticipating that the Eden would be in Golis, giving them the solace and strength to know, as he gave the vow to his brothers and to the Eden, he said, when you leave this place, which will happen at the end of the Golos Messiah, you'll take me with you. So Yosef remained with them as a Yosef's role is, not to go back to Etzisro. Yaakov's role was Etzisro. He came to Mitzrayim for a short period of time. Yosef's role was to remain with the Eden in the darkest of places, to give them the strength, that they should know that just as I'm going to be returned, so will you. And they always reminded them that Yosef was with them. 
The Rebbe said the same thing with Yesuf Shabbaterenu, the Friedrich Rebbe, that did not, exist, did not ask to be placed in Eretz Yisrael, but the oil is here to give the strength to Eden in the short period that we still need it as we're in Golos. Strength, of course, carries over now after Gimel Tammuz, however you explain it, that the Rebbe is with us. A shepherd never forsakes his sheep. And that is a place that you can find, even in Golas, even in the United States, you can find the strength that gives us the strength to keep forging ahead until the day when Mashiach comes and we all go back there to Israel together. So the lessons here are pretty obvious, especially coming from Hey Tevis, I spoke about that last week, the Nitzchias, the eternity of what a Rebbe is, because his whole Nitzchias, his whole soul is engraved in his letters and the words, and the Tera that he leaves us in his directives, it's not about his physical presence, even though we would love to have that, but it's, he lives on through his Tera, so when we are committed and we continue to grow in our commitment, and our passion and vitality and strength and activities in this spirit, then that Rebbe lives with us and among us and through us to the entire world. In the words of the Rebbe that I just cited from the Yiddish in the Sikha, the famous Sikha, Tezvo of Tamus Tov when the Pasha of the Svarim began of Hei Tevis. So the lesson is very clear to us all meant to give us strength no matter what circumstances we're in, just like Asada Batevis teaches us. That not just when it's light and bright in your life, things are great, but even when there's a setback, even when you may not see the obvious blessings, they're hidden from view. That we should know that it's all a stepping stone to a greater revelation. And we have to see it through and remain with the fortitude and strength, not just to get through it, but to transform it, that it becomes a catalyst that catapults us like a springboard into whole new, unprecedented heights. Okay, with that, let us go to a bunch of questions. And let me use this opportunity, first of all, to thank all of you for your participation with questions and comments and support of all sorts. And um, to, to tell you that anyone who wants to submit a question, please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. <clears throat> There you have a forum where completely, absolutely confidential and anonymous. So your, your identity is completely protected. No one knows who you are, not myself, no one, because it's a completely protected forum. It's just a forum. If you do want a response or you want material that sometimes I offer, please add your email there because that's the only way we can send you something. We cannot respond to you. There's no way for us to do so. And that's intentional and very deliberate so people can feel free to write without having to be concerned about their, um, about their confidentiality. And I know that's very important, especially when it comes to sensitive and personal issues. And um, so questions keep coming in. I, I please God every week I feel like we're making progress, but there's always more questions. So bear with me. We will cover everything. I go through it and, uh, and we're moving along. So here's some questions. Some of them are more timely. Some are follow-up. Some are new questions. I will begin with a question that was a follow-up to what I was speaking about, Dafiemi learning the different shiurim we learn on a daily basis. And since it's coming from Yutas Kislev, this is a follow-up to Yutas Kislev, which was just uh, two weeks ago. Is it two weeks? Yeah, 
two weeks ago. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what ha- why has Chalukah Sashas not gained traction in Chabad? Is the short question. Chalukah Sashas is the dividing of the whole Talmud that there was a custom instituted already by the Alter Rebbe Negeres HaKedosh. He writes, they should divide Shas and learn it once a year. But since many people can't learn the whole thing, dividing it's everybody has a piece and it's like considered like we all together, like a shutvas, a partnership, learn the whole Shas. Because the Alter Rebbe wrote that, that became the custom that Yutas Kislev was a time when the whole Shas was divided. And talking about the Fabrengans of the Rebbe, he would give out the notes, cards, and people would write the Masechta that they're going to learn that coming year. We know even the Rebbe, which Masechta some of the years the Rebbe filled out very often with Sanhedrin, but there was other Masechtas as well, and the Friedrich Rebbe did the same. Due to circumstances in Russia, for a period of time, I believe from Tofre Samar Gimel, it was changed from Yutes Kislev to Chavdala Tevis, the Chalukas, the separation of the Shash, the breaking, dividing of the Shash, I should say not separation. And then the Rebbe reinstituted in Tovshin Yud Gimel that it should, I mean, in the years, I'm not positive about the years, but around then, to back to Yutes Kislev. So the questioner is asking in detail the following. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your insightful comments regarding Daf Yemi. That was two weeks ago, three weeks ago. As we just celebrated Yutes Kislev, I had a question regarding the Chalukah Sashas. Again, I said the division of the entire Talmud the, this custom was instituted by the Alter Rebbe and is mentioned right at the end of Egeres HaKedosh. Correct. Every year shortly prior to Yutas Kislev, we are reminded about this custom and lists are distributed to Hasidim for them to sign up and commit to studying a Masechta throughout the year. I am wondering why this custom hasn't really gained so much traction and attention in Chabad circles. I rarely hear it mentioned or encouraged at Fabrengans with the exception of a brief mention on Yutas Kislev as a mere formality. This is rather surprising as learning a Masechta requires a significant commitment a commitment and a lot of time. Besides for those that conduct Siyumim during the nine days, that's the conclusion of learning the tractate during the nine day period during the summer. It is rare uh, summer in this hemisphere. It is rare to see Siyumim taking place at Fabrengans, even at Yutas Kislev itself which is odd if so many people supposedly signed up and committed to learning a Masechta. No, he doesn't see people make Nassim because it would be at the end of the year you finish the tractate that you had taken upon yourself. Of course, I have to be Melametzchus, which means fine merit, but I just don't hear people talking about the Masechta, the tractate they are learning, and it just doesn't seem to be up there on the list of Chesidish commitments. This may be a convoluted conspiracy theory, but maybe since the Dafiemi program is so popular and successful throughout the world, the Lubavitcher community doesn't view daily Talmud studies as an exclusive practice to Hasidim, and rather focuses on those Lamudim which are Chitas, which is Chumash Tehillim Tanya, Rambam, Mamorim, Sichas, etc. I wouldn't be surprised if the two are related somehow. Of course, Chitas and Rambam are encouraged the most, as they are the Rebbes in Yanim. But for some reason, the Chalukas Hashaz didn't make the cut. I'm just wondering why this is, why that is, and what would be a good way to fix it. Thanks so much for your insightful, inspiring broadcast each week. Call Tuv. Okay, as, I, as you know, those who have been listening to this program and those that are listening for the first time, I take all questions and uh, accept if there's something seriously offensive or inappropriate. I may reword it, but I want people to be able to have a platform that they can really ask anything. 
Now, this is not a controversial question, but it's just I wanted to just point out we take questions of the entire spectrum. Now, um, I would say the following. I'm not going to be Malamet's Chus, because this is a directive that anyone who is by the Fabreng and Zutas Kislev every year, beginning with the Rebbe himself, and he would make a seum often, sometimes in Yutas Kislev, sometimes other times of the year, was clearly a directive that goes back with the Rabbeim. So I don't see any reason or excuse why it shouldn't have become popular. It's true. Perhaps learning Rambam is a shorter amount of things. You're learning every day three prokim. Um, in fact, actually, I think learning Shas over the year may be even easier. But regardless, maybe the Rambam is something fresher. People heard about it straight from the Rebbe's mouth. But I'm not going to give a limutzchus because the Rebbe wanted us to learn Teda, and one of the ways was separating Shas and learning a Masechti each year. So I'm not going to go give an explanation. My explanation is that some things... For some reason, people are more lax about, and they're not as focused. I see this platform as an opportunity to read this letter and say to myself and to all of us, maybe the time has come to be mechazik. Especially now, there are many things that got a little weaker. The Rebbe himself often would say, time has come to reestablish or renew our commitment. That's how I would look at it. I don't think we have to analyze it. I don't want to justify it as if it's legitimate. I'm sure if we ask the Rebbe, the Rebbe says, say, Rebbe, take a Masechta. Take a short, shorter Masechta to learn. So I don't think there's a reason to go justify and say, and therefore, it, it, if the Rebbe stopped it or the Rebbe did not focus on it every year, you could say whatever reason, it's a time when it was important, and now it's still important, but not as a primary thing. But I know that some people could say, listen, how much can you learn each day? But you know, we know that limit is a mitzvah to me that you're supposed to learn all the time. Now, obviously, every person of fum shira delay. Some have to learn pedik echad shachris, pedik echad arvis, which means one chapter in the morning, one chapter in the evening. So some people say, I already learned the chumish, the shir and chumish, the shir and tilim, tanya, the rambam. He may have other kshirim, so it's difficult for me. So I'm not here discussing a person's individual situation. Speak to your mashpia, speak to your aselach harav, and figure it out. But overall, it's an absolute takana from the Rabbeim, meaning something the Rabbeim instituted. And I'm not going to start measuring whether Chita is more important or the Ram is more important. And if you only have time for one, which one to do? It's not our, my role or anyone's role to measure. That you have to speak, as I said, to your mashpia, to your mentor, or to your Rav, to your teacher or, or, uh, or authority, and review what your situation is. This, I'm not here to criticize but I also don't want to justify something that I see nothing from the Rebbe that gave a heter, so to speak, an opening that one shouldn't do it. Now, everybody has their circumstances, and that's why you have to look at it individually in that sense. But collectively, absolutely, and let us take upon ourselves. Yutaskisa was just a few weeks ago. You can still take upon yourself a mesechta, and you have a year to learn it and fulfill what the Rebbe, Alta Rebbe writes in the Gerasakedish. And now there's also a kuntris called Kuntris Chalukas Sashas that I had discussed to prepare in the later years, the Rebbe actually was Magiyat. It's a collection of all the sikhs that the Rebbe spoke about dividing Shas, the Talmud, and also different explanations. It's a beautiful, powerful sikh collected all the way from back from Chavdal Tevis in the early years of the Rebbe's Nesiyas, the Yud, going through all the years and collecting it all together in one place. So that's something also that is printed in the Sefer HaSikhs, Tavshin and Beis, when the Rebbe edited it for that Yutas Kislev, and it's a very powerful sikhim, you learn it, you really get an inspiration to actually learn 
and take, a, take upon yourself a Masechta. So I would recommend learning that. Sikhs, you see there, collected, you don't have to go through all the years, collected all in one place, the emphasis and the reason that I've asked you the question, why Yutas Kislev is connected to Chalukas Hashas. Yutas Kislev is the Chayra, seemingly Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Shulchan Aruch said, Chavdala Tevis, Al-Tareb is Istalkus. So fine, is that Atanya Val Shulchan Aruch. But why Yutas Kislev? And he explains there how Yutas Kislev is, Chassidus infuses Shas and Talmud with the element of, of, um, of uh, vitality and primis that primis Atera brings. Speaks also about the, the capital Kufiyates in Tehillim. The Altarev also mentions that when he talks about dividing the Shas, that it should also be saying that capital. Check out that Sikha. It's not really necessary for me to review right here. So, my point, bottom line, is that this should be refreshed and reinvigorated and recommitted to, and everyone that has that ability should definitely take part of it. And that's something we need to be doing. And we have to inspire each other. And if we see a little weakening in something, I don't know, but that's what Asar Batevis teaches. We strengthen the wall. We strengthen the commitments. We strengthen everything and bolster that which was given to us by the Rabbi. Okay. Next question. What a- These are questions that are not necessarily related to one another, as you see. So we'll make a little break. Next question. What aspect of a Jewish mother determines the Jewishness of her child? Conceiving, caring, or both? The person writes more in detail. Who is a Jew and, and about who is a Jew and surrogate parenting? A child born of a Jewish mother is Jewish. But what about a child who was conceived from a non-Jewish mother and carried to term by a Jewish mother? Which is one of the marvels of today's technology that you can do that. Or what if a child conceived from a Jewish mother and carried to term by a non-Jewish mother? Where for one, whatever reason the mother cannot carry the child, but the conception is that mother's, it's her egg that was fertilized, so sometimes carried by someone else. So who's the mother? The carrier or the donor? What determines a Jew? I heard of Israelis going to India to be implanted with non-Jewish embryos. Are those children Jewish? Okay. So this is borderline halacha question that should be asked by competent rabbis. But because there is an element of ashkofa, element of also a methodology of understanding, by stretch, you can stretch it into chassidus applied because there's also a certain element of applying teir and chassidus to situations of this nature. In general, authorities, rabbinic authorities, who also have, in this case, you need to also understand the medicine of it, the biology of it, because not just to make a decision, because in the time of Shas, you didn't have a situation like this. It wasn't possible. A person couldn't carry, God forbid, would miscarry. So you didn't have this, that option of an egg being implanted in another person's, in another, the womb of another woman. But now we have it. So there's actually three opinions in general in halachic discussions on this matter. I was once at a Torah science conference and some of the experts in the world from Israel and other places spoke about it. Quite fascinating. But briefly, the three opinions are the following. One is that it goes by the donor. And the carrier is simply like, a, like one of the rabbis put it, was like the chip comes from one country, but it was carried, meaning it was, it was, it was mailed in the post through another. So the carrier is not significant to the motherhood. There's the opposite opinion, that the carrier is the main thing, because that's where the child develops. And there's a third opinion that a mother needs both. 
A mother needs to be both carrier and conceiver. And actually, there's a fourth opinion that there's two that 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 that, that a person like that would have like two mothers, because conceiver and carrier, both of them can be reckoned considered motherhood. Now you can imagine how complicated this is. That's why the consensus is that um poskim is that the unofficial consensus is that it's not permitted to try to avoid the situation in the first place because of this complication. But if it's done, then bid the evid, which means after the fact, the baby needs a gear either way. Because remember, the issue here is one is who's the mother. The second issue is if one of them is not Jewish. There, it's a question of Jewish. If the, if the conceiver is Jewish and the carrier is not Jewish, and according to the opinion, the carrier is so significant, then it's a not Jewish child. So they say, because we don't know which is for sure, and there's different opinions, no matter what happens, you should make a gear you should make. Whether the conceiver is not Jewish or the carrier is not Jewish, you should be Megaya the child. That way you're safe. And it's not because you're ruling on the child, it's just because you want to make sure you cover all the bases in these circumstances. But because it's complicated, some suggest don't go there in the first place, if possible. Now, I'm not speaking as a Rav, because I know it's a sensitive area where women say, I want to have a child. And this may be the only way I can have a child. So there are, so I would suggest talk to a competent Rav that you trust to get a ruling regarding you. I'm speaking more of the concept of it, and more particularly, something I talked about actually in different episodes in 178 and 223 that connects, that's actually the mother that determines the Jewishness of a child, not the father. So there is that element. And we spoke about then, but it says in Tanya that the neshama seems to be from the father, it says. Like Ha'av. And yet it goes by the mother. The father determines the tribe of the child. Whether you're a Koyin, a Levi, Yisrael, or what, what Shevet you're from. But the Jewishness is from the mother. So when you speak about it more from a Hasidic level, the Hasidic level, you think about it that we know the Gemara says, It teaches the, the child, the fetus, learns and that's the carrier, not the conceiver. On the other hand, the conceiver carries the actual leg, carries the genes, the personality, and everything that this child will be. So from that point of view, and again, this is not halachic, it would seem that both contribute powerful elements that will define the, 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 the personality and the identity of this child. So that's why it makes it more complicated, because if you have one and not the other, does that mean that there's something missing? Or, or, as I said, all the different opinions before. So I wanted to just talk about the concept, not so much the ruling. The ruling, you should go to a rabbi and I reiterate it again. Do not base it at all. What I'm saying here, this is not a ruling. It's meant to be addressed by a rabbi, a competent rabbi. I'm just speaking about the idea, the Indian, as they say. In Indian, what the discussion is about. Okay. Since the question came in, most importantly, I refer you to go speak to a competent rabbi or rabbis on this matter. As far as the motherhood goes, I spoke about gears. So there you have the solution is just to go through a gear. So that's the motherhood goes. That's, the, that's why you need it off to determine what you do in that particular situation. If one's, which opinion do you go by? I, I believe the, the, the majority rules that it's the mother is the, is the conceiver. That's what I recall. But again, don't rely on my words here. I'm just speaking about things I've heard. And you should go to competent rabbis. Okay. Next question. 
Should we insist that our eight-year-old son go to shul on Shabbos? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. You have, you have read many of our letters before, so we are hoping you will help us deal with this issue as well. Do you feel we should be insisting that the place for our eight-year-old son on Shabbos morning is in shul? He's not interested in going, and it becomes quite the discussion every Shabbos morning, but we feel that staying home and playing with his younger siblings is not the place for him either. We have tried giving him incentives to want to go to shul, like rewards, after a few times. We've tried to give him weeks off where he can stay home. My husband goes to shul with a chayis, with a chayis, with a vitality, and Davin's nicely, so he can't say the problem is that he is learning to be not interested by example. We have tried taking him only for an hour and taking him home after a short while. We feel we might be sabotaging a good thing by allowing him to stay home and play while not insisting he goes to shul. On the other hand, forcing him to go when he's not interested is probably more, more destructive than constructive. However, we don't feel that waiting around for him to be interested and ready is right either. If that time will even come, will even ever come on its own. Perhaps you can share some insight to this. Thanks so much. Well, you really covered the bases in both sides of the argument. It's exactly what I would say. And uh, I don't know if there's a black and white answer to this. Because which means we educate a child according to his way so that over when he gets older he does not waver from it. So obviously there are things we teach children that are necessities. Saying brachas, washing, the things, the, all things that chinuch comprise. But to make a decision about going to shul is a really personal decision about this particular child. And I would never suggest something that a mother and father who love the child and care about the child probably know what's best. But I will weigh in because more my more objective, you have to really see if the resistance is so strong that by going, the child will just be resentful and take a, bitter, a bad taste and bitter taste about shul. I think the answer is obvious. If, on the other hand, you see whether it's the incentives or from time to time you could get him to go to shul, and it won't create a negative, a bad taste, then that encouragement, of course, is kadai. So it doesn't have to be every week. It could be once in a while you suggest it. Maybe save it for special days, his birthday. You know, birthday getting, okay, the child doesn't get an aliyah, but do something special in shul, make a little kiddush there. You find ways to make him feel special, special days. It could also, obviously, there's the Yom Noroim, there's Roshan, Yom Kippur, there's Sukkot, Pesach, Hanukkah, Purim, um, Shavuos going on the, through the whole list. I would find days that are opportune, see if you can find a way to motivate him, and that is uh, always going to be worthwhile doing. But I would not force it at all. Now, another aspect I would add is the friends, his friends. He stays home with his siblings, but he has friends. Are he good, is he good with his friends in school? They go to shul, why wouldn't he want to go play with them? And if he doesn't want to go, Why? I would look into that. If his friends also don't go to shul, so maybe it's worthwhile talking if you have a good rapport with the parents of those children, and say, you know, maybe we should make some type of Mesibah Shabbos club or something. Go to to shul, because children are very responsive to their peers. So if his peers go, it may be another way of enticing him. But I would stay away from any type of imposing and definitely not agonizing over it. 
Definitely not agonizing. Because you want to be healthy parents, happy parents. I'm glad to hear your husband goes to shul and he really, it's a good experience for him. And that's what you want to make sure your child has a good Jewish experience. I would also ask the question, what does Friday night look at, at by your table? When at home, not in shul. Is he having good Jewish experiences? Is the Friday night table alive? Is it exciting? Or is he bored and runs to his room? These are all indicators. So I wouldn't just focus on purely the going to shul and Shabbos. I would look at the child in a holistic way. Everything. Is he studying well in school? Is he excelling? Does he like Yiddishkeit? You know, maybe once in a while, I just saw my grandson was taken by his father on Hanukkah. So there's the menorah parade in New York. So the shul made a, a double-decker bus. You should see the passion. The children were so excited. And it was around Yiddishkeit, around Hanukkah. And they were Mitzoyim. I find ways to excite your child that not necessarily means shul. Most likely, if he's excited in some years of Yiddishkeit, it'll spill over that he'll maybe want to go to shul more. For him now, shul may be boring. But if he sees other areas, it doesn't have to be Shabbos. It could be other times, shul or other Jewish activities. So I'm just suggesting from many different angles, not always looking at one thing. Does he go to shul on Shabbos or not? You have to look at all many different things, and I have no question that Shem will help that you'll find the right answer and the right approach. If you need more follow-up, please do so, and I'll be happy to address it. Next question. Yeah. The seven Noahide laws. So here's the question. What should be our goal? Well, no. How should we speak to non-Jews about Sheva Mitzvahs? Okay. How should we speak? What type of world should we describe when we speak to a non-Jew about doing the Sheva Mitzvahs? In other words, what kind of world is he building? I was told that the Rebbe said that it shouldn't just be telling non-Jews a whole bunch of things they can't do. In other words, they can't do this, you can't do that. But rather, there's a bunch of positive mitzvahs that come out of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Neach. I'll explain in a moment. What is our responsibility in this mitzvah? Okay, so first of all, let's begin from the beginning. This is a topic I've spoken about in episodes 30, 112, 153, 192 through 194. And it's based on the Rambam in the end of chapter 8 of the laws of Melach Hilchus Melachim that the Rebbe began to talk about extensively in the 80s, in the Mems. And that is, that just as the mitzvah for it to inspire non-Jews to follow their Sheva Mitzvah, the universal code of morality that the Bnei Neach, the children of Neach, embraced. And they should do so, not just because it's logical, but because it was given at Sinai. And this became, by the Rebbe, a cornerstone of preparing the world for the Gula. Because when the Gula comes, the non-Jewish world, including the non-Jewish world, will embrace God. Knowing God. All the nations will be transformed. They will serve, as the different prophecies say, that this basi based field, this house, the Beis will be a house of prayer for all nations. Light onto nations. I can go on and on. You learn in chapter 36 in Tanya, he brings all the psukim, how the world, not just the Jewish world, the entire world. The words of Yeshaya. So in describing what the world will be like, the world of peace, no jealousy and no uh, unhealthy competition and no malice. 
No famine and no war. That's the entire world. So it's a world that everyone aspires to. So how do we build such a world? We build it through our mitzvahs. So Jews have their mitzvahs, but we all commonly have certain universal laws. And that's how you motivate somebody, by telling them, by doing, by behaving the way God wants us to behave, according to God's blueprint, and with all the universal moral code, which gives the basis and foundations of civilization, you prepare the world for what we all hope for, a world of peace, a world of prosperity, a world of spirituality, of higher consciousness, and so on. That's the gist of it. Now, the halachas, the sheva mitzvahs, are written in the negative. But as the Rebbe explains, and explained in many Sfarim, the negative is only like, do not, do, not, uh, do not defile God's name. Which means, on the positive end, that respect God. Do not hurt other people. Respect people. Do not damage property. There's reasons why it's written in the negative, but the bottom line is, as it says in some Sfarim, there's actually the seven mitzvahs, so you break them down, they turn into 90. Because they're really central mitzvahs. They're not some side little things. If every human being, including Jews, followed the Sheva mitzvahs, we'd have Mashiach here. No murder, no damage, no stealing, no sexual improprieties. God, laws, having justice system. Evi which in a broader sense is also protection and respecting animals. What am I missing here? Murder, yeah, no murder. So you have the Sheva Mitzvah and the foundations of society. Oh God, and not the curse God. Okay, fine. So bottom line is that to explain them that way, it's very powerful and very beautiful. And that's the way to do it because remember, to inspire someone, just tell them, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. That doesn't work, not with a Jew and not with a non-Jew. On the contrary, show how your activities, your moral behavior of being a kind person compassionate person, not hurting others, not hurting others' property, respect, and all that comes with it, makes the world, makes you a better person, makes your family a better family, and makes your community better, and makes the world a better place. That's the, the gist of it. Okay, next question. <clears throat> As I said, I referred to other episodes where I discussed this more at length, and that's why I'm being short and brief right to this question. What should, we, what should be our goals when we go on Mifzayim? Okay, so Mifzayim literally means campaigns. The Rebbe established, or in the beginning in 1967, by in connection with the Six-Day War, the first Mifzah campaign was of the 10 Mifzayim that we call the 10 campaigns, was Mifzah film. That every boy and man after Bar Mitzvah putting on film every weekday. The truth is, there were campaigns before the campaign, Mifzah Elul, all the way in the beginning of the Rebbe's Nesiyas, to, to be in Elul, prepare for Tishrei, Mifzah Matzah, to give Matzah out to Jews. But what we call the Ten Mifzahim, it started in 1967, and, and then the Rebbe added, over the next few years, associated usually with Eretz Yisrael, and the wars there, Mifzah Mezuzah, and the other, other eight Mifzahim, Mifzah Teireh, that was five Miftzayim. Then the rabbi added the three for the women, especially for women, which is Rosh Hateves Chana, which is Kashus, Achille Vishdiya, Neir Shabbos, Kedish, and Taras and Mishpoche. And then Lamed Vov, Lamed Vov, the rabbi added the next, the final two was Chinuch and Aves Yisrael. So this is because what we call going a Miftzayim. 
for Bochrim, it was mostly designated on Fridays after Seyed Yeshiva to go to different communities. And it became part and parcel of Shlichus in general. Because these are the Rebbes saw that these Temifzoyim, without going into analysis why, are fundamental principles that would lead Jews into Yiddishkeit. Mitzvah, Gereris, Mitzvah. Obviously, it doesn't preclude doing other mitzvahs. But this was an entry point. So, of course, the question has always been asked, what exactly is entails going to Mitzvah? In Lama Tov Shalaman Gimel started the concept of a mitzvah tanks that would go on corners in different cities and with uh, playing music and stopping people at the street and saying, you're Jewish, getting them to try to put on film or the other mitzvah I just mentioned. So the question is, what is our goal with our Friday Miftzayim, these campaigns? What mitzvah should I push for first? What should be our one-year plan, ten-year plan, etc.? So in truth, when you look at all the sikhs of the Rebbe, there's no one way to do this. It was, an, it was a methodology that we're going out, reaching people. Film, of course, is one of the easiest things because you get someone to put on film. They ask questions. You give them some booklet, maybe, and... The point, of course, is that it should all encourage them to grow in their Yiddishkeit. But the action was the main thing, the action. To get a Jew to do a mitzvah. Because you don't have the time necessary. Someone's in the street walk, running to work or, or at lunchtime or whatever to sit and talk philosophy, philosophy. Now, if somebody wants to talk, you can invite them for Shabbos. You can talk to them there. You can invite them to a class. But the ten mitzvahim, where main focus was getting an action. A woman, here's a nesha kit. Comes Friday, Yom Tif, light Shabbos candles. You, your daughter. You, your mother. And the same thing with other Miftzayim. Obviously, Chinuch and Aviz is a little broader. But they all are something that is tangible, that's relatively easy to convey to someone. So we have a lot of literature today that we pass out. Now the key, again, is an opening. It's like getting the door open. Do one mitzvah. Mitzvah gratis mitzvah. You hope that the person will be more curious. And always leave them with the opening, please call me if you want more. If you have any questions. It shouldn't just be done, I'll never see you again the rest of my life. Now, whether they will call or not, that's up to the person. But that's the real goal, is to get the door open. And we know that a mitzvah has the power to be a catalyst and generate a ripple effect, as the Rebbe spoke about. Mitzvah Neshek once, how a whole family was transformed to become Shemesh Shabbos. Just one girl started lighting Shabbos candles at home. Because that's the power it has. So it's really a, a way to open the door and, and, create, and get the ball rolling and having that ripple effect that I said. Now, each case is different. You meet a person, some people want a little more explanation. Some people just like the idea. Let's just do it. And this is case by case, different personalities. The Rebbe, in many ways, in many, like in all matters, told us what we should do, but he didn't tell us exactly how because it's case by case based on your personality, based on the person. Some people need a more emotional appeal. Some people need more an intellectual appeal. Some people just need an action. As the Rebbe told Arik Sharon, who asked about the power of film, actually putting on film, he said, what's so important to putting on film? Why can we just learn? We'll learn Torah. So the Rebbe said, he's surprised that you're saying that. You are a general and lead soldier in the army. Imagine soldiers say, you know what? We're only going to read military books and military strategy. We will never do any exercises. Would that work? Of course not. Because the Maisoika, the main thing is the exercises. You want to go to war, you need to know how to do it. Same thing with Miftzayim. It's action-oriented based on, of course, the Teda. And one of the Miftzayim is Teda, to learn. By a small Sfarim, to have Sfarim. So that's the short of it. Okay, let's do now a few follow-ups. We'll do the Chassidus question, and then the essays, follow-up. 
So the first follow-up was about empowering women versus role confusion. This was basically in episodes 230, last week's episode. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your ongoing weekly My Life Chassidus Applied Shurim. They do much to edify our community. With all due respect, and I do truly feel that you are a master of Chassidus, I feel that maybe you wandered a bit off the path in episode 239 regarding empowering women and would love your feedback. We know from Taylor that men and women are different, and each has a unique role in serving Hashem. The roles of men and women are gender-specific, and by and large, men and women are most fulfilled when they stick to their roles. Men are by nature conquerors, and when not at war, are best suited out of the house and earning a livelihood. While some men make good homemakers and are great at being their, their children's primary caretaker, by and large, men are, not, are most fulfilled by being the breadwinners. Women, by and large, are most fulfilled by bearing and raising children. This is a twofold blessing. The women are fulfilled by raising their children, and the children grow up healthy by having mom at home raising them. This doesn't mean that some women aren't like that. Some women can't have children for one reason or another, and others choose not to. But by and large, women are most fulfilled by being centered around the home. We also have people who do, who do to various sad conditions resulting from both nature and nurture, have gender confusion. But for the purpose of this question, I'm going to leave them out. I totally understand the reality of families needing a dual income. Both my husband and I work full-time. We need to in order to make ends meet. I, look, I work as a lawyer, and my husband runs his own business. My husband is also great at home, helping me with lots of the homework. Baruch Hashem, we are truly blessed, but the principles outlined above remain true. Men and women have distinct roles determined by their gender. Why do we need to buy into the left-wing nonsense that women need to be men, have a career like men, be out of the house like men, etc., with all that it entails. Why can't we say, no, Torah values are eternal and men are men, along with their roles, and women are women with their unique roles. Anecdotally, we see two things. One, the well-educated, successful, ruling-class women are in society generally take lots of time off to raise a family and not be career-focused, leaving the less-educated, working-class women to have a full-time career and have others raise their kids. Women who do put their career ahead of having kids generally end up quite unhappy and think they were duped by society into not having children. Why can't you be a voice for the traditional values of Torah, namely that women should view their primary focus in life as raising a family with all else, even shlichus, being secondary to that? From my education, I don't think that the Rebbe taught that shluchus should be, shouldn't be that keres abayis, which is the foundation of the home, for their own homes. Certainly their roles are primarily as mother and homemakers, and only secondarily as shluchis. As an aside, this approach would also help you empower men, as you mentioned, because men will then have the primary role clearly defined without women encroaching on it. Thank you again so much for all you do for our community. Okay. Then I have another letter which is the exact opposite, that says that it wasn't strong enough for the women. With all due respect, I know you wrote that expression, so I'm use it. I'm not sure you really heard what I said. And I'm not saying this in any condescending way. I don't recall at all taking some type of liberal position. I think I said more or less what you said without the details. I also referred to other episodes where I spoke about this at length. Now, I'm not being defensive here. I would suggest listening to all of them again and tell me whether you still stand by what you said because and what am I going to say? Repeat what I wrote and said. I did add, absolutely, that the Rebbe introduced 
Neshei Bnei Chabad, Lubavitch Women's Organization, insisted that women be their par- partners with their men, that did not take away from their traditional roles. It only adds to it. And I'm also surprised you call yourself a lawyer. You're a lawyer. That means you went to law school and you studied that. So I respect that your primary thing is being a mother, and I love that. Great. But you're a lawyer. So what are you saying? The other women should not become lawyers? So I'm not really sure what you're really suggesting. And I'm really saying it in a, hopefully in a kind and um, an amicable way. It's not, I'm not trying to be confrontational. But since you challenge as if I was suggesting otherwise, I feel it a little like out of place because it's not exact at all what I said. Women and men have many things in common because God created them as human beings. Probably more things in common than separate. Then there are things that absolutely different roles. That's why there's a man, there's a woman. And they're partners in, in the home. And they're partners in their, in their uh, life, lives. And each one has, yes, unique roles. And I've spoken about it many times. I also have a chapter in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, on women and men. So it would be more constructive, I hope, if you could go back and point out exactly what I said that you have issue with just then instead of a general sweeping statement because I'm not really sure where you got what you said based on what I said. That there are people doing what you're suggesting, that may be right. But like when somebody once wrote something to the Rebbe and the Rebbe said, well, your letter is perfect, but it's to the wrong address. It's not referring to what I said. So I would suggest if you could, for, for constructive purposes, point out exactly a line or two or five or whatever just to make a be specific, what did I say that you feel is something that you feel I went too far? And, uh, and I would, I'll be happy to address it. Um, as far as the overall, what you write, I, I, I agree with it in general. I still think it's case by case. And by the way, I'm not criticizing that you're a lawyer. You made the decision. Maybe you needed two livelihoods. And uh, you, know where you're, you know your head is at. You know what you're focused on. And fine, and we see that. But the point I was addressing that... If you were told that you cannot become a lawyer and you were told stay at home and that's that, would you listen? That's what I would like to know. And what do we do with other women? Every woman is case by case. I know women who don't become necessarily professionals and they're very happy, but they still have a leadership role. Leadership does not mean they should become a rav. And we're not talking about breaking any halachas or doing something that in any way is different. But we're talking about things that did change. Women going, women's schools is now an accepted thing even by the most charedesha who once didn't exist at education. Women leaders in the Eifron of Kfud Melech Prima is a reality and a necessity, I would say, in communities. Empowering women to lead, lead, lead other women and all that that entails and encompasses. So again, if there's something that you find that I said specifically instead of just a broad uh, a brush statement, I'd be happy to address it. The other question, which is exactly the opposite that I didn't say enough, didn't empower women enough, we'll address next week. Can't cover everything. There was another follow-up, which is, let me just get my papers in order here, about buying a car. In episode 238, someone asked, what car should a chassid buy? So I spoke about it. And someone just referred to me to Igris Kedish, volume 12. The letter is letter 4034. So the Rebbe writes, Yeah. The Rebbe says it's good to buy a new car. And you don't have to go into a whole uh, clarity purposes. This clearly was written around 1955. I believe the Rebbe says that the new cars today are 1955. Better than buying a 1956 car. And it'll be a lot cheaper as well. 
So new doesn't mean new, new. It could be just a car from the previous year. So good, thank you for that. So I don't know if this is a, what a car a chassid should buy. It is a directive from the Rebbe that I would say is a pretty common sense directive. Probably most likely due to the fact buying a used car will break down, etc., etc. I don't know if this is an issue today with leasing cars and all that that comes with it. But this is a nice letter, so thank you for that. Okay. Let's now go to the Chassidus question. Chassidus question is on thought, on machshava. And the question is, briefly, how does machshava thought relate to Midas? So the person writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I, I always understood that machshava is an expression of seichel, which is intelligence. I just saw in two places that machshava comes from Midas, which is emotions. And I don't understand on a practical level how machshava thought, which is a tool for intelligence, should be cause, should be cause and effect from Midas. Number one, the one place is in this week's Pasha, I'm not sure when this was written, so it's not this week's Pasha, but Lukutetera, in the Maimer Kriya Shema, that would be Ve'ashanon. The Rebbe says clearly the order is Midas, Meseichel, or Machshava Memidas. Midas from Seichel, and Machshava from Midas. Derech Mitzusecha Isr Ervas, it says Machshava and Dibur, Leia and Rachel, derived from Midas Yaakov. Okay. So, first of all, let me explain what Machshava is. And then we can explain the answer quite obvious. What's the difference between Machshava and Seichel? One is thought, one is intelligence. And in fact, in Yeshiva, they never told us. It's always a thing that was like always. But if you learn Tanya, it's very straightforward. Seichel is a faculty. Machshava is a lavush. What's the difference between a faculty and a garment? Let's take physically. A faculty, think of the limbs and body of your body. Those limbs are with you. Your skeleton is always going to be part of you. Garments... You can change all the time. You can put on this jacket, take it off, another jacket, a shirt, pants, and all the other garments we wear. What is that as a muscle for? The faculties are the faculties you're born with. You have Chabad, Chagas, Nehim, ten faculties. As he says in Tanya, ten faculties that Nishtal Shlomahem that evolve from the ten spheres, divine attributes. They have the three categories Chabad, intelligence, Midis, Chagas, Nehim is like more the practical Midis. And malchus, dignity. Or different ways that these spheres are explained. So we have ten faculties. These faculties are like equivalent to who you are. It's an inherent part of your being. But then there's the expression of your faculties. You can have all the intelligence in the world, but if you don't think, you don't speak, or you don't act, the intelligence remains dormant inside your brain. Same thing with motions. So what is the role of the, of, the, of the levushim, the garments? The garments is there's only three ways to express yourself. Your intelligence can be expressed through thinking to yourself, speaking to another, or acting on it. The same thing emotions. You could have great love in your heart, be a very loving person, but you don't act on it. You don't express it, I should say. There's three ways to express emotions. You think about emotion, you think about the love you have for somebody, the second is dibur, you speak lovingly, and an action, you act lovingly. So machshava, dibur, and maeser essentially think of them like instruments, tools, garments. And now you could change. You could have a machshava in one moment, you're thinking of one idea. The conscious thought is machshava, and then you suddenly change, like you change a garment. The seichel never changes. Your intelligence always remains your intelligence. You can gain more information. But your intelligence, the way you think, the way your brain is shaped, just like your brain doesn't change, your pure power, your brain power doesn't change. Though you can make it grow, 
But expression is a whole different thing. Expression is like a garment. A garment is not an inherent part of the faculty. So you can think something very beautiful about somebody, and a minute later, God forbid, think something very negative. So the levush has changed. What happened with the positive thought? Let's say you right now, you learn the mesechta, one of the examples in Chassidus, you learn a Masechta, then you go learn something else. What happened with the, the knowledge of the previous tractate you learned? That remains in the faculty state, and it's not expressed. Machshove is the active conscious expression of whatever ideas that you have in your mind. So emotions are the same idea. Machshove, thought, can be the thought of a, of a beautiful feeling. Thought is basically the expression of Midas. That's why you have times that says, Machshove comes after Midas. After you have the faculties of intelligence. And the intelligence awakens an emotion that's still all in the internal faculties. Now we need expression. And expression is either thought to yourself, speech to another, or action that actually acts something, or writing it down, or whatever action entails. That's the general explanation for this subject matter. Good. That's why he says in Tanya that a Benini has faculties that are active from the animal soul, like from the divine soul. A Baini controls the expression, the Makshava Dibra that his thoughts, his speech, and actions should always be expressing things from the Nefeshalikis. A Tzadik has destroyed the Yetzirah, or the different levels, Tzadik Gomer, Tzadik Sheinagom. And therefore, it's not just Makshava his faculties have actually been refined. A Baini, the faculties, you could have the Nefeshabamis and, and full force, but he never allows it to control. This his expression, his thought, speech, and action. Not the seichel of the nefesh abamis, not the midas of the nefesh abamis. Okay. Now let's go to the to the essays as we do. Uh, next week I'll probably be announcing the formal announcement for this new essay contest, this fifth year's essay contest. You can begin writing essays. It will be based on the rules that we've had before, but let's call it still informal. But you can begin. I'm giving you an inside tip if you're listening. So why not have a little extra time for the $10,000 first prize, but more details to come. Okay, so but we're still covering the essays from last year's contest. Many, many came in, so thank God we still have plenty to cover. Essay number one is called Overcoming Challenges, Gamzu Lateva, Amunas Hashem Abitokhan, Mindel Learner, age 18, Woodmere, New York, Student Benos Chamesh Academy. Okay, so what does Mindel write? Why is it that we encounter situations that oftentimes leave us frustrated and sometimes angry? Why is it that we find ourselves annoyed when faced with seemingly trivial circumstance? Is it because that specific situation was custom tailored for you? Hashem placed you in that exact place? It's because, I'm sorry, not a question. It's because that specific situation was custom tailored for you. Hashem placed you in that exact place in order that you face that challenge and overcome it. And goes on to explain that idea that every situation we're in is based, and that's a muna, is based on that idea that a challenge is given to you by God. Using Tanya and other sources, including including, different sources that explain this idea. And using a muna, betochen, and the balance between them seeing everything as Gamzul Tevit toward the good. A well done essay, nicely written. It was enjoyable to read. This essay 
the new essays that are posted every week, this is what I'm reviewing, can be seen at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Or if you subscribe, and if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, we send out notices about all these new essays, so they come into your inbox. Okay. I see it's also connected to this week's parsha with Yasef, who uh, understood his kavona, why he was sent to Mitzrayim. So every situation is meant to ultimately be something that leads us to greater places. Great. Okay. S- next essay is The Rebbe's Leadership After Gimel Tamas by Nechama Dina Turk, age 44, Chicago, Illinois. Okay. So this essay is like this. Lubavitch movement was established by Rabbi Shneur of the Adi in White Russia, in a small hamlet of Lubavitch. Goes on to speak about the Seder of all the Rabbeim, all the way leading to our Rebbe, the seventh generation. Assumed the Rebbe assumed leadership in 1950-51, until his passing in 1994. And addresses the issue, what, so what is the Rebbe, what did he leave us with? After Gimel Tamas, what are we supposed to be doing? And how do we look at the Rebbe after Gimel Tamas? So, I think it's the only essay, actually, that I've seen that addresses this so directly. So that's interesting. And um, talks about the Rebbe Chosid Bond, obviously based on Chassidus. And what the Rebbe taught us, what means success, and how we perpetuate the Rebbe's legacy with a conclusion saying the Rebbe who is a tzaddik has a greater presence in this world after his passing. With the Rebbe's infinite wisdom, he prepared us for the period of a Chosid for this period of Achos's life, is not an easy task, having been used to a spiritual mentor giving us verbal guidance. And now Achos has to receive it through his teaching, directives, or other open miracles. Furthermore, when one is accustomed to receive a verbal answer, one has to be open to accept answers that come in different ways. But Achos believes in his Rebbe and knows the Rebbe lives on. With many good references, well done essay, and very relevant. Okay. And finally, the third essay is to understand a convert by Eliza Elisheva Garvin, age 26, Brooklyn, New York, a student at Bellevue, Univer- Bellevue University, and Machon Liadis, working in Crown Heights. Okay. Conversions to Orthodox Judaism are not uncommon. A Jew by birth may likely meet a fellow Jew who became Jewish by choice. In Hebrew, a convert is called a ger, or gerim in the plural. How can one who is born Jewish understand a ger? How can we, Klaliswam, make converts feel less like a stranger? To do this, one must apply and understand elements of Hasidic teachings as it relates to Gedim. Hasidus employs not only the study of Kabbalah, but is derived from the deepest secrets of Teda to help us understand is that were revealed to only a select few sages in every generation. Hasidus makes these teachings accessible. Going on, again, very unique essay. Again, I have not seen something addressed so directly. And she talks about herself very directly. I was born to a Caucasian Muslim mother who immigrated from Jordan. Jordan is a small Arabic country in the Middle East that shares its western border with Israel. It talks about her home's history and her siblings and how the Rebbe's impact on her in the Sikhs in Tavshim Memches. Explains the Sikhs from Chof Nisan Tavshim Memches that it is a Ger, not a Gentile, who goes through Gaidah's conversion, that a convert always had a Jewish spark or an element of Jewish holiness within them. Okay, so very uh, unique essay to read. I highly recommend it, especially coming from a place like that. I was very, very moved by this essay, taking chassidus and applying it to a situation which is so sensitive, and even for some, controversial, and really beautifully done, how chassidus really helps us embrace 
that which the Torah so many times says, Avis Ager, five times even more than Avis Yisrael, and uh, the Rebbe himself emphasized it so strongly. So thank you for that. Thank you for opening yourself up and uh, sharing this with us. So that's it for the essays. So here we are. We conclude this week's episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 240. Everyone should have a meaningful Asada B'Tevis, transforming it to May this Tevis, month of Tevis, be a Tevis, as the Rebbe brings from the Gemara, Guf Guf, that we transform the Guf, the Yeshes of the body and the coldness of this winter into warmth and into vitality, Chassidish warmth and vitality, and Bishzechu finally to Vayichi, Vayichi in the full sense of the word, Yaakov Leimes, that be Tchis Amesim, for, for Ali and for the Rabbeim and for everyone of our families and so on, the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. Everyone be blessed. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And we'll be here next week as well. Thank you so much. And everyone have a very good week.